from St. Luke's Gospel, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, have you anything to eat? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. You know, one of the things I hope you begin to see in this season of Easter is that if you look at uh, you look at biblical Christianity and you read about the characters in the stories, you begin to see something very startling, and that is this, that the people in these stories are just so plain normal. Dealing with the same issues, the same confusion, the same challenges and fears, the very same things that you wrestle with, maybe not the specifics, but in a general sense, this idea of just confusion and, you know, what is going on? So where does God meet us in our challenges and our field? What are the things that you wrestle with even today? Where does God meet you? Where does he meet them and you and me in our challenges and fears? Where does God meet us in our uncertainty and our fears? Where does God meet us in your life when you're confused, when you are uncertain, when you are struggling? Because here's really the question at hand here, right? Is God really a personal God that actually cares about you or not? And it's actually not a rhetorical question, because if you look at the history of human religions, the idea of a personal relationship, God is an outlier, like way an outlier. No human religion ever said that God actually cared about people personally. Typically, the relationship with the gods, if you will, and humanity was, they were either uh, used for um, intimate purposes, humans were, or food. Right? The gods didn't care historically about people. And in fact, if you don't believe me, look at a guy whom I like to make fun of, a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher, atheist, and really just kind of a downright insane man. One of his criticisms of Christianity, there was lots of them, but one of his was this idea that there's no superman, there's no great big uh, super gigantic out there being that just kind of throws lightning bolts down onto the earth and obliterates people's enemies. That's what Nietzsche wanted. He called it the Ubermensch, the superman, the ultimate man. It's kind of hard to translate. It's a German word. And what, the thing about Nietzsche, which, which just disgusted him about Christianity, is that there's no, you know, there's no like, you know, great big superhero flying in the sky with lightning bolts shooting out of his eyes and red lasers and just obliterating the, the uh, doers of no good. No. That really upset old Freddy. Because Fred Nietzsche did not want a personal God. In fact, I would submit to you, most people really don't. What they want is a God in the sky who's far away. Maybe he intersects with humanity from time to time, but basically God does his thing, and more importantly, we get to do ours. <laughs> Friedrich Nietzsche wanted a higher power, you see, but the God of the Bible does not give us a higher power. He's not a higher power. He's a person. He's a relationship. Christianity is, is shocking in, this, in lots of ways, but in this regard in particular, how God actually condescends to become a human being and meets us not in a slave-servant relationship, but earthy, real, personally. And Easter season, all Easter well, really the whole church's year, is about this very same thing in all different circumstances, how people meet Jesus in a personal relationship with him. How might their stories illustrate our own? How might their stories show us 
about how God works in your life and in mine. So I'm going to look at two things from our story this morning, which is just chock full of churchy goodness in this text this morning. There's all sorts of great stuff in here. But I've got two points that Jesus meets us where we are. First point is he meets us in the emotional stew of uncertainty. And secondly, he meets us in the reassurance of his presence. So Jesus meets us where we are, in the emotional stew of uncertainty and fear. And secondly, I want to look at the reassurance of his presence. So before we jump into that, let me paint some background here for you. We are, we are in the third week of Easter, right? So it was Easter, then Easter 2, then Easter 3, okay? And the texts from Easter were Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Last week we talked about doubting Thomas, which actually doesn't happen historically until next week. Uh, we, we hear about the story of these men on the road to Emmaus um, in today's gospel. But the one I, what I want you to see here, firstly, is that all these stories, Mary Magdalene, the men on the road to Emmaus, Thomas, and the story from today, all happen on Easter Day. This is all happening. Boom, 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 boom. Mary Magdalene comes back. I've seen the Lord. Yeah, Mary, you're crazy. Then these guys from Emmaus come running back. They're going to Emmaus to get out of Jerusalem. These two men, which we sort of skip over in, the, in this, lesson, this year's lectionary, they, they leave the men in the upper room because they're scared, and they go to Emmaus because Emmaus is not Jerusalem. They're trying to get out of Dodge. They see Jesus. He breaks bread. They see him, and they run back, and they say, we've seen the Lord. So these disciples who are hiding because they're afraid that they're going to get whacked just like Jesus had been. They're fearful. They're hiding in this upper room, probably the same room they celebrated the Last Supper. And into this stew of uncertainty and fear and doubt, and now what do we do? These two guys come bursting into the room this morning. It's where our text picks up. These two guys who have been on the road to Emmaus, leaving the disciples, see Jesus, and they come back. They run back. They run back to the disciples who are hiding in the upper room. And why do they do that? Because when these men are walking, running to Emmaus, they meet Jesus, they're, walk, they're talking with him on the way, he breaks bread with them, they realize that it's him in the breaking of the bread, and they say, man, we're not our hearts burning within us, and they run back to tell the guys back in Jerusalem. Now let me just make a, make, say two quick points with that. In all these instances, what I want you to pick up on is very simply this. Every single one of these people, Jesus meets them personally. He meets them personally in individuals and then a group every time. Right? Mary Magdalene, then she tells the guys. The, uh, Thomas, then he tells the guys. The guys from Cliff, on the road to Emmaus, they run back and they tell the guys. Every single time, he's a personal encounter with Jesus. And these men that are on their way to Emmaus, they see him and they run back to the upper room to tell the guys who are hiding out in the darkened room. Kind of like, it'd be sort of like running into Portland right now. Portland is, again, for a while, is, there's not riots again there. Think about, say you left Portland to get out of Dodge because it's being burned to the ground, and you run back into it. Why would you do that? Well, you, they run back into Jerusalem to tell these people gathered together, guys, the Lord has risen indeed. Now, picture what's going on here. He's been in the upper room. They heard about Mary, what she said. I've seen the Lord. And they're like, yeah, Mary, whatever. They don't believe her. It was an idle tale. Who would believe her? Why would you believe her? 
And then John, James and John come in. We've seen him. Yeah, right, guys. Then these two guys from Emmaus, we've seen the Lord. The Lord is risen indeed. And I want you to stop there just with point number one and say something very, very important because this has something to do with your life as well, and it's this. Point one, that Jesus meets us. Jesus always meets us in the emotional stew of uncertainty and fear. Look, these are real people. We have all been where they are in this text. I mean, think about it like this. I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of the people in this church right now has lost a loved one. Somebody that you love has died. Is that fair? Pretty much? Is it just me? or Everybody in this room knows somebody who's died. Imagine that that person, your best friend from childhood, maybe your, your parents, your grandparents, maybe a child, maybe a sibling. Let me ask you a question to sort of put you in the frame of reference of what's going on here. What if somebody burst into the room and said, you're not going to believe this, but I've seen your grandmother, your grandfather, your child, your sister, your daughter, alive. What would you say? What would you say? What would you feel? Would you believe them? Would you believe them? You know, in one sense, you'd, you'd want to, right? I would. In one sense, you'd want to believe them, but, sit, but still you're, you're, you're going to doubt. You'll be disbelieving for joy. I'll get to that in a minute. You'd want to believe them. God knows there's, you know, I buried my dad two and a half years ago, Tony Rodriguez. May he rest in peace. I love him very much. I miss him. And there are days, and Kathy can tell you this, that I will move to pick up my phone to call my dad, and then I realize, oh man, that's right, he's, he's dead. But what if someone said to me, hey, I, I, just, you're, I just saw your father at Wawa. I mean, what if? What if the person you'd lost, you'd seen alive? What if someone told you that? What would you say? What would you feel? Would you believe them? Well, that, the point I want you to see here is that is exactly the, this emotional stew. I don't know how else to put it, but the tension, the drama, the angst, the joy, the fear. That's what's going on here in this group of men in the upper room. I want to, I want to show you this. These, and that, this is the point. This is, um, let me show you this. They, they, these two men, they run in, they say, we've seen the Lord. And then Jesus, right after they say, we've seen the Lord, he appears to them. It's the same appearance that they tell Thomas about next week, okay? But that he appears to them, and Luke says that they were uh, frightened. The Greek word there is the word amphobos, phobia, right? You might get from that. And, and to give you an illustration of what that means, you might say fearful, but it means to see something and to be startled or to recoil. I'll give you an example. Say you're out, I don't know, walking your dog down the street, and it's getting dark, and your dog is not a very large dog, and he's on a leash, like he should be. And you're walking along, and your neighbor's dog, which is much larger than your dog, comes running out. It's a big dog. People think it's a wild pig sometimes, I've heard, been told. Oh, that's, that's, that's the, this, is a, this is a theoretical question. And this dog comes running out at you. What would you do? You'd, you'd be startled. You'd be terrified. You'd be scared. You'd freeze. That's the word. They see Jesus and they freeze. And it gets even stranger. They're terrified. My, my, what is going on here? And then it says here, they see him, and it says, they were disbelieving for joy. What does that, think about that. What does that mean? 
They were disbelieving for joy. You know, I spent a week in the Greek, trying to, and then the commentaries, and the texts, and all these different things, trying to figure out what this means, means, and I still don't know. In fact, nobody really does know, except that it means something like this, that they actually, they don't believe. There's a dead guy, he was dead, now he's alive. They're disbelieving, but they're actually, well, maybe this is true. You see what I'm saying? Like, they're disbelieving. Like, it can't possibly be real, but yet, what if it is? And that idea of joy there, it's this really weird smashing together of, of emotion, right? This disbelieving for joy, you, this can't possibly be true, but yet, what if it was? Kiro is the Greek word. That word, joy, does not mean, woohoo, he's raised. It means like, um, it's a really hard word to translate. Disbelieving for joy. Kiro means... Uh, it means to be taken from where you are and lifted into a higher, this sounds really esoteric, but bear with me, lifted into a space that is higher than where you are. Let me give you another earthy example. Christianity is best, best when you bring it down to real terms. So, give you an example. If you ever had a child or a grandchild or you held a baby for the first time, you know what that feels like? You've been there? It's, just, it's not like, woohoo, but it's like, holy, what is it? it's indescribable. It's a sense of being lifted out of something bigger than yourself. It's a, spear, a sense of joy. And so they see Jesus. They say, this can't possibly be true, but what if it is? What if it is? The bottom line I want you to see here, friends, is that confusion, when Christ appears, reigns supreme. Life doesn't make any sense, friends. Life at this point for these 11 doesn't make any sense, but Jesus meets them right there where they are. Jesus meets them right in their confusion and uncertainty and fear, right there, bam, he's right behind, right with them. He meets them where they are. He meets you where you are, but he meets you where you are on his terms. Let me give it to you like this. If you've ever had a real experience with Jesus, then or now, it's the same story, man. Disbelieving for joy, an odd mix. You know, this occurred to me when I was 24 years old. I was reading, studying, reading about Christianity, and it occurred to me once. I'd sort of dismissed it all out of hand. And I thought to myself, oh my God, what if this is real? This can't possibly be, be true, but what if it is? Like, it changes everything disbelieving for joy. It's an odd mix of this can't possibly be real, but if it is, it changes everything. In the midst of all this confusion, this fear, this uncertainty, Jesus meets him right there. And Jesus, this is where it gets, I love this. He meets them in the stew of uncertainty and fear and doubt and what is going on there. And Jesus says something incredibly profound. You guys got anything to eat? Don't miss that. Don't miss it. You guys got any chips laying around, any goldfish, cold pizza, something? And it struck me as a little bit odd this week as I'm reading through there, but if you think about it, Jesus meets them where they are. He always does. I mean, he, he, he eats to show them that he's physical, right? That's why he does it, because they're wondering, is he a spirit? Is he a ghost? Are we, are we seeing things? Well, you know, he could have given them some long lecture about 
theological, biblical theology, but now he's like, he cuts through all the fuzz, man. You guys got anything to eat here? What does he do? I mean, he's, he meets them where they are. He meets you where you are. He meets you in relationship. You know, just yesterday we hosted um, a, it was awesome. It was a gathering of the, it was a, a breakfast for the Daughters of the King. If you don't know, the, da- the Daughters of the King are a, an international organization of women that, that their whole mission is prayer, service, and evangelism. And we've got a very large and very capable chapter of the Daughters of the King in this church. And so Linda Ensomini and Ginger and uh, Judy came to me and said, hey, let's put together a luncheon for all the local chapters of DOK, St. Augustine's, Trinity, and St. Elizabeth's, and Sebastian. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And I'll tell you why it was awesome, because there was no agenda. I didn't have to run the meeting. <laughs> there was no agenda. There was no, there was no uh, value proposition, no deal to close, no business to cover. No, man, it was just fellowship, just fellowship. It was relationship, and it was an amazing thing, and it was unscripted, which was the best part. Linda kicked off and said, I want you to go around the room, ladies, and I want you to tell, I want you to say what, 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 when and why do you pray? And it was awesome. They went around the room, and you begin to see themes develop. But it was great. Thank you, daughters, for that, the privilege of being there with you yesterday. And the reason I bring that up is because it's in relationship that these things become real, right? With Jesus, with your family, with your spouse, with your fellow daughters of the king. See, Christianity is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. Christianity is not a series of things to be accepted or rejected. Christianity is not how much Bible you know. No, it's not a neat and tidy theory about how God, to explain God. That's what Frederick Nietzsche wants, and Frederick was crazy and he was wrong. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The resurrection without a relationship with Jesus means nothing. And I would submit to you that life itself without a relationship with Jesus means nothing, then or now. Let me ask you this, and I'm going to move on to point number two. Where has Jesus met you in the storms and confusions of your life? I have here in the confusion and vicissitudes of life. Where has he met you there? Because he will. He always meets you where you are. Jesus meets us where we are in the emotional stew of uncertainty, and he cuts through the fog, and he proves to us that he's real. And the second thing we see then is this call to proclaim. Look, Jesus shows them, have you guys got anything laying around to eat? And they give him a piece of fish, and he eats it. He shows them his wounds, and they're like, this, this must be, I can't explain this. <laughs> I'm disbelieving for joy, but this is true. This is true. And then it sa- he says to them, he literally engages their doubts. He shows, not with argument and logic, but with relationship. And then he gives them a charge. He gives them a mission. He says, he's going to, a, a mission of repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, here these guys are in this upper room. It's dark, it's crowded, it's quiet. It's probably pretty smelly because they've been there for a while. That's ground zero. Jesus says, you are going to change the world from this room outward. He says, you are witnesses of these things. That word for witness is a Greek word, martus. 
martus. And a martus is somebody who takes a stand in a court of law. A martus is somebody who says, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but I can tell you what I saw. I can tell you what I saw. I can tell you Jesus changed me. Martus. I've, this is what I've seen. I've witnessed. I've experienced firsthand. Jesus says, you, y'all, second person plural, y'all are witnesses of these things. Martus, by the way, that word martus is where we get the word martyr from. These 11 men went out from that point after Pentecost. They go out, and those 11 men who are cowering in fear, become, they go out, and they actually become witnesses, telling people around that they had seen Jesus alive and well. And every single one of them, but one, John, every single one of them was murdered, martyred, martus for their witness. See, friends, most people think of Christianity as doing what I'm right, doing right now, right? Preaching, expository, teaching what the Bible says. That is true, but that's kind of my job. I mean, it's your job too, if you're not saying you can't read Scripture. What I'm saying is that even if you don't know a whole lot about Scripture, you, you do know one thing, and that's this, that the Lord has and is changing you. Always be prepared to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15. Each of you has a story. Each of you is a martus, a witness. Maybe at some point a martyr. You've got a story and so do I. Here's my question for you. Have you shared it? Have you proclaimed it? Do you believe it? Does that peace, that confidence, that joy, that fearlessness, that boldness that Jesus gives you flow out of you? Because here's the deal. The story is always the same. Whether you're a Cleopas and the other guy on the road to Emmaus who run back into almost certain death to tell everybody else what they've seen, or the 11 in the room, who, the 11 in the apostles in the room that go out into what is certain death to tell them, I've seen the Lord, He's, this is real. The story is always the same, friends, whether it's them or you or me. That when Jesus changes us, when that faith clicks, when it becomes real, our job is to tell others about it. To be witnesses, and maybe someday even martyrs. To the truth that Jesus has raised from the dead, that Jesus changes the world, that he's conquered it, and he has saved us. That Jesus changes the world, friends, for good. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus raised physically from the dead, whose presence assures us that he's got this, that he is real, that he eats with us, that he gives us the peace which passes all understanding. Lord, help us to be witnesses of the changes in our own lives. Help us to be humble and accepting that he is changing us. Help us to be bold in telling others the good news of how Jesus is changing us and those around us. Help us to be witnesses that draw others to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.